Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Well, like I said, last week the best part of the sermon has already been preached, but we have more as we continue in our Sermon on the Mount series in looking at Number two of what I describe as eight plus one beatitudes. But as we get there, can I just make an observation that as a people, as a nation, as a culture, we are not doing well. Christians included. Here in the West, we are not doing well. You take a look at some of the circumstances, and I'll have a word about this in a moment, but... Watch the news and look at the ever-increasing levels of anxiety-producing news. Uh, Concerns, fears over the climate, war and more pending war, pandemic, economic volatility, inflation. I am guessing my next tank of gasoline is going to be over $150 at Costco. There's a general pessimism concerning the future in the West and in the world. There's an increased measure of fear and hopelessness. Yes, we have bright spots. Yes, we have Emma Emma Herringa. And you say, that's worth celebrating. That's enough. But if you look at the big picture, you say, wow, there is a lot of doom and gloom around the world. Um, It's producing some very strange things, and I read this study this last week that there are more and more individuals that are not saving any money for the future. They're like, dunzo, there's not going to be a future. They're not marrying. Married couples are not having children. They're so pessimistic concerning the future. More of our children, both in and outside of the church, are experiencing Uh, Different kinds of emotional trauma, uh, chronic and acute anxiety and depression. There's an exponential increase in emotional illness in our nation over the last two years. More and more individuals embracing a worldview called nihilism or nihilism, meaning life has no meaning. And it just makes sense. That's why the number of mass shootings Increasing exponentially because my life has no meaning, neither does yours. You might think it does, but I have permission to do what I want and go out big. And this is just the increasing hopelessness and despair that's going on. You say, ah, but not for us believers or Christians. But I'm going to actually say a few things. Um, I am not a fan, emotionally speaking, of post-Christendom. And what's post-Christendom? The idea that we're no longer the major voice. And I know the spin doctors and the positive thinkers, I'm sort of wired that way. But I'm supposed to get excited that the culture is sliding off the cliff into oblivion? I mean, this last week, uh, my two sons, my older son was going to take my younger son to watch the new Buzz Lightyear movie. It's not out yet, I don't think, until we discover how hard Disney, family-friendly Disney, 
is pushing the LGBTQ plus agenda. And yes, in the new Buzz Lightyear movie, there is what has been described as a gay kiss. And I'm sorry, but I cannot in good conscience give my money for my family to a theater to do that. You don't clap, please, thank you, no, no thank you, I, I get it, you're fans, you, you feel like I do, um, and I, I don't mean to be, be rude, but I'm saying, there are individuals that say, oh, finally the great sifting of the church, finally the purification, and we get to see who the real ones are, and this is supposed to make me happy, and I'm sorry, but I'm not. But here's what we all have in common. And that I would even point to the spin doctors that say, it's so great, the remnant is emerging. Is we try to jump to the end and put a smiley face on it without going through the middle. And what is the middle? The middle is something that Jesus described as mourning or grieving. We're not processing well. And I would say that American Christianity for the last five decades has been terrible at the ancient practice and ancient art and the very Christian and and biblical and Jesus-centered activity called lament or grieving or what Jesus uses the word in our English translations, mourning. And I get it. You want to know why we don't? It's because it feels yucky. See, it it does not feel happy to be sad. And so we love to skip over the middle part and jump to happy. It's it's a heavy-duty, grungy process of going through genuine biblical mourning. And yet without that, there can be no true deep, profound, substantive happiness. The word mourning, it's more than just feeling sad. Mourning is a process of embracing sadness. Uh, Other words for it, lament, that an extraordinary number of the hymns that were in the Jewish hymnal, we have the collection, it's called the Book of Psalms. There's 150 hymns in the Bible. They used to sing them in church. And a vast number of them are lament. Feeling sorry for personal sin. Sins done to them. Sins around in the world and in the culture. A process of embracing sadness, lamenting and grieving. Processing the hurts and the pains. The disappointments and the failures of life. Here's my question. Do you know how to lament? Do you know how to mourn? Because I would say that in general we hate it and we're not good at it. We'll do anything to avoid it. We run from it. We medicate it. We ignore it. We explain it away. We spin it and try to jump to the positive way too early. Or there's some of us that are pros at at jumping to a secondary emotion called anger. 
And why do we choose anger? Because you can't take away the dis- disappointment. But what you can do is you can adopt a different emotion that makes you feel in control, makes you feel powerful, and at least you said some things on Facebook. At least you said th- some things to the driver next to you. At least you got it out, and it felt good. But it is a short-circuiting of what Jesus is inviting us into. You say, ah, wait a second, that's not the gospel. The gospel is good news. And we get to be joyful and we get to celebrate. Um, a song that, that came from my childhood, Tyler, Pastor Tyler didn't know it, um, you're blessed. But um, seriously, we used to sing this, I'm in right, outright, upright, downright, happy all the time. And then you sing that again and again and again, and then says, since Jesus Christ came in and saved my, my world from sin, I'm in right out, happy all the time. And you say, really, is that the Christian life? Is that biblical? Is that even Jesus? I get it, the gospel's good news. It feels really good to know that you're forgiven of sin. But by jumping to that all the time and teaching our little kids to do that, we're dysfunctional. We, we, have, we want to get to the end, which is happiness and joy. But we want to get there without going through the middle. And what the middle is, is the heavy lifting of mourning. That you need to look at it and allow it to be felt. And guess what? It's not what the scriptures teach. You cannot jump over the middle. This is a broken hurting world, and we are all hurt in it and by it. You, you want to know what the Old Testament says about it? Read Psalm 88. I dare you. Write it down. I dare you to find more than one good thing in that psalm that's, that's happy. Okay, and then look at the life of Jesus himself. You know, in John's gospel, we get this powerful picture of, of the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, He gets word that his friend, Lazarus, is sick, and he remains on for a little while longer in the south parts of Judea. And after a day or two, he travels up, and by the time he gets to his friend's house, his two sisters, Mary and Martha, come out to him, and they are so upset, and they are hurt, and the scripture records, John records this in John 11, verse 33 through 35, and remember, this is the way of Jesus This is our model. This is our example. We are apprenticing our lives after him. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then it says this, Jesus wept. And our our clues are are in in the text that he's looking around at, at Mary and Martha, and the other professional mourners. Some of them were actually hired. They would come, and they would just raise a ruckus. And Jesus was looking at that. He wasn't, it wasn't a problem of hypocrisy. It wasn't a problem of, oh, they're sad, and they don't know that I'm going to raise them from the dead. Jesus, in that moment, was identifying with the, with the kind of travail and the, the trauma and, and the pain that is experienced by everyday run of the mill, common humanity, and what sin has done to devastate this world. And Jesus identified with it. He saw it. He tasted it. He touched it. He felt it. He grieved it. And the scripture says that Jesus 
wept. That is the way of Jesus. A lost art to modern-day Western Christendom. Jesus not only lived in the perpetual state as the man of sorrows, the one acquainted with grief, but he also began his teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount. He says in Matthew 5, verse 4, our scripture for today, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed or blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. These are a part of a collection. I've said I, I am a believer. There's the, the triad, the three, three, and three uh, model of there's nine, and they're broken up in these, these triads. I'm an eight plus one. Uh, I believe the, the eight are divided in two. The first, uh, or yeah, the first four uh, have to do with a, a man or woman's relationship with God. The next four have to do more with our relationship to one another in the world. Um, and then the, the eighth one is so powerful that he breaks it out and, and explains it in deeper nuance. That's my perspe perspective. Um, I don't have to be right, but we are in that first set of four. And Jesus begins here in verse 3, Blessed are uh, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes right into this, Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. This is a part of the Sermon on the Mount called the Beatitudes. And what's fascinating about these is that they seem so negative and, and dark and heavy. And yet they're called the Beatitudes. The word Beatitude meaning a state of utmost bliss. And that, that word comes from uh, the word in the Greek for blessed, makarios. It literally means to be supremely blessed, uh, to be happy. Happy is a great translation, but it lacks the depth and, and the weightiness. So, so a, a word that we in, appreciate here is flourishing. Flourishing, a kind of happiness that means a deep and profound, substantive flourishing of life. The short list, last week I described nine qualities of the Beatitudes. I'm just going to grab five of them and say that all eight plus one are a description of every true disciple of Jesus. They are not eight different kinds of people, but all genuine followers of Jesus. They are a description of the kind of person that experiences the fullness of God's favor Thirdly, it, there's a promise in each one of them that guarantees the, the complete and utter fulfillment in an age to come. However, because they all start in this present tense adjective, blessed are, that we know that Jesus is getting at something that can be experienced in the here and now flourishing in this lifetime beyond what we've experienced so far. And then finally, in each one of these Beatitudes, I believe with all my heart, there's an invitation to embrace them. Instead of running from them, explaining them away, to embrace them to a way of life that might seem difficult or odd or upside down or inside out or backwards 
to, to discover that as we embrace these beatitudes, poverty of spirit, or a willingness to embrace sorrow in a process of a grieving that, that's called mourning, that we discover the right side up kingdom that brings emotional, mental, and spiritual health, that brings happiness and goodness and spiritual transformation, we discover the best version of ourselves. And that's what Jesus was inviting his followers into in chapter 4 before he walked up on the mountain, sat down, and began to teach with authority. It says in Matthew four seventeen, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Change your mind. Change your mind about yourself first. That you are not the perfect person or that you are not the unforgivable, unredeemable person. Change your mind about yourself. Change your mind about your sin. Change your mind to what God says is true about you. But then secondly, change your mind about Jesus. More than a carpenter turned rabbi. A savior. Jesus, lover of my soul. Change your mind. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here. It's right now. It's not only then when he returns. But it is right here, right now. Do you believe this? Jesus invites us with this repentance. Change your mind. And one of the things that he invites us to change our mind about is sorrow. And how it pertains to happiness. I get it. We're not good at it. We don't like it. Sadness does not feel happy. Happiness feels happy. And we're all looking for happiness. So how can we get it as fast as possible? And Jesus says, stop it. Slow down. Go back. Start again. Look at the damage. Look at the pain. Look at the disappointment. Hug it. Grieve it. Lament it. Mourn it. Because the kingdom through doing this can be experienced. Not just then when we will be ultimately and completely comforted, but we can begin to experience this kind of blessedness right now. Okay, I know it sounds illogical. And we, we read this, blessed are those who mourn. And if we just translate, happy are the sad. It's the title of the message. You go, no, Jesus, don't do that. People are going to think you're crazy. And in fact, they did. But he was getting at a much more true and profound reality. That those who mourn are the ones who are blessed right now. And they're the ones that are going to be supremely happy in the age to come. Which brings us to a universal principle. And I would say this, what Jesus is teaching is actually much more specific than what I'm about to teach. But it is not other than what I'm about to teach. Do you follow? His context and what he's getting at, that's going to be our, our sub point number two. 
But first and foremost, and I think this is good for anyone, no matter where you're coming from uh, on your spiritual journey. So you could be an agnostic, an atheist, um, and you could actually, you could just, a psychologist could tell you this. But before you call it psychobabble, read your Bible. Because it's absolutely biblical. And it is this. Until we learn to embrace sorrow, we cannot be truly happy. And a pagan psychologist could tell you that. And Jesus would agree. And the Old and the New Testament would say as much as well. Everyone suffers. And so there's a universal uh, experience that every person could experience. That you're not going to numb this thing away. You're not going to spin doctor it away. You're not going to somehow uh, avoid it. You've got to hug it. Um, there is so much sorrow and brokenness. No matter what religion or spirituality or, or uh, theology you embrace or reject. A divorce, death, abuse, loss, disappointment. How about this? The end of a dream. There's some things that I thought for sure, maybe even I, I even thought that the Holy Spirit was telling me to be hopeful and, and something good is going to happen. And in, in the end, that's not how the story goes. It's the end of a dream. It's disappointing. It's, it's full of um, confusion. Everybody goes through those things. It's life on a fallen planet. This world is a mess, and it's full of sadness. People in the West, not just the church in the West, we get a D minus. There are cultures that don't know Christ that do mourning and grieving and lament far better than Westerners, and they're better because of it. We, on the other hand, we run, or maybe even we power up and say, overcome, Suck it up, soldier. We're, we're, uh, we ignore it. We suppress it and push it down. Or we chase the next rainbow or the greener grass, thinking that the next setup is going to be life. And we want to get to life. We want to get to joy. We want to get to happiness without going through the middle. And Jesus and the scriptures and, and, and wisdom say you've got to go through the middle. Hey, I'm, I'm guilty. I'll just tell you, I hate it. I hate pain and sorrow. I'm a fixer. Ask my wife. She just wants to be heard. And I want to fix it instantly and explain it. And, and I want to say, but don't you see the silver linings? I'm an overcomer. I turn to grit and uh, toughness and endurance. That's why I'm a runner. I want it to hurt to say that I conquered it. I'm great at playing a game called Sour Grapes and Sweet Lemons. You guys know that game? So Sour Grapes is from Aesop's Fables. And it's a fox that's trying to reach some grapes and he can't reach the grapes. And in the end, when he gives up, he goes, oh, they're probably sour anyway. Didn't want them anyway. And that's how the fox deals with the pain of disappointment that I can't get what I was reaching for. Sweet lemons, on the other hand, is when you get something really bad that you didn't want, and you go, well, we'll just make lemonade out of them. And I play that. 
It's one of my survival techniques, and I will do it for you as well. If you catch me doing saying, Pastor Jim, please stop. Can we just be sad for a moment? Can we just talk about the damage? Can we actually lament and enter into a process of sorrow that is cleansing and purifying and hopeful and helpful? Because unless we embrace sorrow, we cannot be truly happy in a meaningful, substantive way. And sour grapes and sweet lemons simply cannot process the hurt in the soul, deal with the loss, and address the violations that we feel. Emotionally whole and healthy people embrace sadness. It's a universal principle. It's found in the scripture. I'll go Old Testament for a moment. Ecclesiastes 7. This is wisdom literature. And Solomon, who is the second wisest person that ever lived, first being Jesus of Nazareth. And you look at Solomon's end of life, you go, he wasn't very wise. Well, um, he was when he wrote this, okay? Or he was coming to his senses after walking away from wisdom. In Ecclesiastes 7, he says this about sorrow in a process of embracing it. Sorrow is better than laughter. Don't short-circuit that. Things are bad, they're sad, they're ugly. Grieve. Why? For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. You cannot short-circuit that. Call it what it is. Allow it in. Allow it to affect you. I know you're worried. Oh, no, I'll become a negative Nancy, a pouting Polly, or a Vicky victim, or whatever. Sorry if that's your name. Just kind of threw you under the bus three different ways, but... Um, serious, we're so afraid of the negative people that we don't want to be that. And yet, you're not going to short-circuit this. There are times when you absolutely should be sad. And to see your little happy, yeah, it's like, that, it's what we call plastic and fake. And it's a turnoff because it doesn't seem real. When these things are, are really heavy and, and we, do, we embrace these things because sadness of face, the heart is made glad. And then listen to this. The next verse, the heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning, of, of that heavy grieving. That's where they park themselves. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth or partying, celebration and happiness. doesn't mean that we don't celebrate and, and be happy at times and moments, but if we had our druthers and we want what's good for us and what will lead to ultimate and true, substantive happiness, we choose mourning first. We go there. And that's what Jesus meant in part or general. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Healthy and whole hearts embrace negative emotions that come from life under the sun here on earth. We must learn to embrace this process. Let me ask you this morning, get you started down the road of thinking. You got anything in your life that's hurtful, scary, disappointing, things that didn't turn out the way you had hoped? I, uh, a couple days ago, a couple nights ago, this is just like all my notes. I actually take them electronically, but scribbling down some lament some things in my life, and there's so much good in my life. I get it. That's not, see, there I go again. But there's some things that I can't figure out. There's some things that I can't eke out a win. I can't figure out how to get what I want. 
And then additional things come in to compl- complicate those things. And, and I'm just before the Lord saying, I, I can't figure this out. I'm sad. And it becomes a prayer journal of just saying it like it is. I'm scared. This hurts. I'm frustrated. I'm stuck. Things that I need to mourn in my life in a general way. Embrace a process of naming it. Tell it to the Lord. Tell him that you're sad. Put your head down. Cry if you need to. And then stay there as long as you can. Don't turn to anger that makes you feel powerful and that you're going to achieve and overcome and knock out your enemy. Don't turn to that. Be sad before the Lord. And let the Lord be the lifter of your head. Got anything like that today? Thing that you just can't control it. And you're just, you're going to go watch Netflix, aren't you? You're going to eat it away with more sugary snack foods. Don't. Don't go on Amazon for some retail therapy. It's not going to help for a little bit. Three days until you get the bill. But it's not going to produce the deep substantive joy that you're looking for. Secondly, and as I said, Jesus is teaching about a more specific kind of sadness. It's definitely a universal principle. You can't get there from here. You got to go through the middle. But Jesus, in this context, is talking about a specific kind of sorrow or mourning that I will call spiritual sorrow. Spiritual sorrow, which is sorrow over sin. And again, the Christian comes back like, but it's all forgiven. You're good. You don't want people to feel icky or condemned. That's bad. They'll live in shame. But here's the problem. You can't get there from here. You have to go through the middle. There's a process of sorrow that we must go through. But I'll tell you, if you embrace that that process, here's the second point. Spiritual sorrow is a doorway of hope, healing, and wholeness. Sounds like happiness to me. Sounds like the abundant life. Sounds like blessedness. And just as emotionally healthy people learn to embrace mourning over loss, spiritually healthy people learn to embrace sadness over sin. Both personal sin and sinfulness but also the sin and sins of others as well. That sin grieves our heart. First and foremost, the sin in here, but also, wow, people are wrecking themselves. Sometimes they're trying to wreck me with their sin. And that is a call for spiritual sorrow. Now, how do we know that this is what Jesus is talking about? Because we look at the Beatitudes. The first one, Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that's a a spiritual, a poverty of spirit that says I am spiritually and morally bankrupt. I got nothing. I got nothing to get me into the kingdom of heaven. We have to begin like a child and stay there, by the way. A humble child that just needs someone else to hold her in the cold baptistry water, shivering. That we never leave that dependent state. Poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we roll right into the second one. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. 
So in the context, it, we're talking about spiritual qualities. And so the mourning, like, like the, 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 spirit, the, the poverty, is a spiritual mourning connected to the poor in spirit. We see an example of this both in the Old and New Testament. I'll begin with the New Testament. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church, he is citing his first letter and something that he needed to call them out over. An entire city church, sometimes it would probably try to gather together, but lots of little house churches and, and pastors over those house churches But they all had a culture that was united. Uh, There was no denominations. But Paul is writing a letter to all the Christians in Corinth. And it was reported, and it was something in the culture of that church, that they were actually celebrating sexual immorality and how open they were to it. They thought it was really great. Look at how gracious we are and non-condemning that there's a man that is sleeping with his stepmom. Aren't we awesome? And Paul comes out, guns a-blazing in 1 Corinthians saying, how dare you? And this, it just threw them into a tailspin, and they felt horrible. But guess what? They embraced that process of sorrow over their sinful application of the gospel, and it wrecked them. So much so that Paul had to write him a second letter and tell them how to clean up the wreckage. Good wreckage. And not only did he say early on in 2 Corinthians, forgive the man, he's repented. But then he talks to them in order to comfort them. And he says this, 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 9, For if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. You felt horrible, didn't you? Good. I did regret it at first. It it made him feel bad. I don't want to make you feel bad. Nobody wants that job. But he says, but I don't regret it now, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief. That's spiritual sorrow. And you... Suffered no loss in the end. And then this is the scripture that I want you to really see. The next verse, he gives a universal principle about godly sorrow that is lost on us. We like positive messages of love and forgiveness. And we want to get to there without going through the middle. This is what Paul says is the value of going through the middle. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. It's good for you. It leads to repentance. And what happens if you'll go through it? It will lead to a salvation of your soul. So I don't believe that this text is saying you were all going to hell and you weren't born again, but when I made you feel bad, you all got saved. I'm saying that this has to do with sanctification and becoming more like Jesus where sin is scoured from from within the persons and the culture of the church, that it was a good and life-giving and healing kind of grief that it produces. And then he contrasts it with the grief of the world. It's the grief you're scared of, that you should be scared of. Worldly grief 
produces death. So let's do a quick comparison here. Worldly grief. Different ways that it's expressed. It's this denial. It's this suppression. It's this explaining away and blame shifting. It's a shallow spiritualizing, a shallow spiritual veneer. Oh, Jesus forgives us. It's okay. No big deal. And what that produces over time is depression and shame, self-loathing, uh, overwhelming religious penance where, where Jesus forgives you, but now you are better than Jesus. And you refuse to forgive yourself because you're going to show God and yourself that you're better than that. And it's exhausting. And it can lead to self-harm. And in Judas's case, Jesus' betrayer, it led to suicide. That is the sorrow of the world. The grief of the world that produces death. Here's godly grief. Acknowledging the sin, mine or others. Embracing the reality of the pain, the loss, the consequences. Staring the reality of it directly in the face. Allowing emotional pain to come. Name it to yourself and to God. Tell him how sad you are. Put your head in your hands. Cry if need be. But believe that when he says, enough, you are forgiven. Or it's going to be okay. Believe it. And when he says, get up, get up. He's the lifter of our head. Man, I'm just going to tell you, we're running out of time. Um, but I want to tell you, I've, I've really blown it at many points along my life. I'd love to tell you stories because I've got them right here and ready to go. Where I've just, just butchered a relationship, put my foot in my mouth, and my first reaction is like, well, you're just, you know, that's, that's you. You're weird. That's your problem. That's your, your kind of prideful pushback. But the times when I've actually grown the most, spiritually speaking, and become more of who Jesus wants me to be is when I just go, no contest. You're right. And I go and sit under a tree, literally outside under a tree, and go, dear God, is there any hope for me? Man, if you are just, you should just put me in the lake of fire right now. I'm an idiot. God, I feel horrible, and I need to feel horrible. Dear Jesus, what do you say? And, and just, just open up your heart and receive that sorrow. Open your heart before him. Sit there. And if it's, if it's two days, three days, three weeks, whatever that is, until the Lord says, hey, we're done with this. Jimbo, we're done with this. Get up. You get up. A better you that looks and smells and acts more like him. What happens if we don't? What happens if we keep running? You want to want to know what happens? This is my Old Testament, Old Testament example. And I'm looking at the clock and I'm like, well, there's no kids, men. We don't have to go pick up our babies. And I'm, I'm looking at this and I go, I, I can't skip this. When we keep running... When we keep running, God in his mercy will run us down and afflict us or allow our sins and their consequences to catch up to us. So whether it's direct or indirect, he loves us too much to bless us in our sin and rebellion and stupidity. 
until we, quote, come to our senses. He uses pain to get our attention, to make us feel grief, the grief of our ways, so that we will mourn, so that we will call to him, so that he will manifest his gracious healing presence. I take this from the Old Testament, the book of, of Hosea. And understand that it's a very specific prophecy for Judah. However, the principle is universal and it's in the New Testament. And it provides us a picture looking backwards of, wow, this is who I am, but this is also who he is. So God has just told them that they have played the harlot for years. And they have taken the good gifts of God and they've sacrificed them to false gods and then claimed that the false gods give, gave them the good gifts. And this is what God says to Hosea. In the illustration, God tells Hosea, you need to go and get a wife who is a prostitute. Have children with her. I want you to name the first child um, No Mercy. And I want you to name the second one Not My People. So that's in the context. This is what God says to the people of Israel who refuse to slow down and look at their sin and feel sorrow over it. Therefore, I will hedge her up her way with thorns, I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue, pursue her lovers but not overtake them. She shall, shall seek them and, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I know I will go and return to my first husband for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil and who lavished on her silver and gold which they used for the worship of Baal. Verse 11, I will put an end to all her mirth, which means happiness, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. I will lay her waste, her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall, shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Verse 14, therefore, behold, I will allure her. I am going to, to woo her out into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. When she comes to the end of herself and she is stripped naked, God says, I'm going to woo her out to the wilderness, away from all of the distractions of this fallen world. I will woo her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor, which means trouble. It's, it's a trouble out there in the wilderness. I'm going to cause trouble for her. As I woo her out, I will make the valley of Achor, or trouble, a door of hope. And there she shall answer, as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. And then it's just going to get better from there. As she experiences sorrow and brokenness, and her gifts and endowments are stripped from her. And she's brought to an end of herself. And she goes, I know. I'm going to go back to Yahweh. He's going to allure her and speak tenderly to her. In her repentance, he's going to come and sit with her. And he's going to remarry her. 
And he says in verse 18, I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall, shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, and you are my God. Will we go there? Will we go to the valley of Achor? Will we, will we follow him into the wilderness? Will we repent of our sin and say, I'm sorry. I hate it. It's produced damage and it's destroyed my relationships. And I'm so over it. And today I'm coming back to you. I want you to know God loves you so much no matter where you've been wandering. He loves you so much that he will let sin wreck your life so that you will grieve and through grieving he will heal you. This is our bottom line. Until we embrace sorrow, specifically for our sin, we will not flourish as God intends. And while it may include moments of intense emotional sadness, it will be an ongoing awareness of, a contempt for, and a turning away from personal sinful choices and sinfulness of heart. So let me ask you here this morning, what do you need to grieve over? There's things going on in your household and in your marriage and your, in your, your, your attitude in, in your heart. They're not good. They're wreaking havoc on you and others around you. And you can explain it away, well, it's just daddy gets angry. Everyone gets angry. Or whatever that is, do you have something in your life that you need to mourn? Maybe it's something that, that's just loss in your life. Something that you need to grieve. Something, some vision or dream or goal that you go, I will never reach it. It wasn't sin in and of itself. It's just life on a broken planet. And can I invite you to put your head down. Put your face in your hands. Say it. Embrace the sorrow. Stop ignoring. Stop defending. Explaining why you did what you did, comparing yourself to others, own it, sit in it, mourn it. And guess what? God comes and sits with you in that moment. He comes to restore and to be the lifter of our heads. As the band comes up on stage, can I just offer a moment of silence? Put your head down between you and Jesus. What's bugging you? What's breaking you? Well, how have you responded to it? What are your sinful choices that you just go, God, this is what it is. And it makes me sad. And I need you. And don't lift your head too quickly. Keep it there.
hug it. Because blessed are those who mourn. Right here and right now, blessed. In the process, blessed. But also, because they are the ones who will be truly comforted. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.